Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 138. So glad you could join us this Sunday morning. We have a great show for you today. Um, both of today, uh, the Poets Respond poets we have coming up are going to be here. Siobhan Doris Jefferson with today's poem, as well as uh, Jaco Benoit with Tuesday's poem later in the broadcast. Um, and then today's main guest is, um, of course... Um, Elizabeth Johnson Ambrose, who wrote the uh, chapbook that everybody has, if you're a subscriber, with this spring's issue. Uh, before we begin, though, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button to share. Make sure you're subscribed. Um, click the bell for notifications. We're adding, um, we just added actually Audible and um, Amazon Music as platform. So if you like those and want to listen to the podcast later on um, Amazon or Audible, you can do that. So, um, and, and there's probably some way to leave feedback because that's how all these algorithms work is by when you leave feedback, you tell people that you like it and then other people can see it too and that's how things spread. So please do click what you can. Um, now we're going to go to uh, today's Sunday Poet with this wonderful poem, One of the Good Ones. Um, and here she is, um, Siobhan Doris Jefferson. Uh, hey, Siobhan, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Yeah. So thanks so much for sharing this poem. It, it was, it was actually kind of strange because I thought we would get like a thousand poems about um, the Will Smith slap, <laughs> um, because that was all anybody was talking about on social media like all week. Um, but instead, there were, weren't that many, and I wondered. I was kind of confused as to why. I mean, most of the poems were still about Ukraine and things like that, or maybe maybe a dozen or so. But this one was so good and such an interesting angle on it too. Do you want to explain a little bit about what you? Um, you know, how the poem was inspired and, and why you were writing about it as, as you did. Um, well, it was actually inspired because, as, as you said, there were so many articles, so many comments on social media. Um, I was actually really surprised um, at the amount of traction that the slap got. Um, there was just <clears throat> so much information, so many opinions. Um, and then one particular one just sort of stood out to me, um, as I said, um, I read a comment by a black man that said, you know, well, he was one of the good ones, you know, look what he did to us. Um, and it was interesting to me that a black person would sort of take that perspective. It was very sad. Um, and that's, that's where sort of the, the, the poem came from. That was the impetus for the poem. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And it, it really, back, I hadn't thought about this in a long time, but way back when Fresh Prince was on, I heard people say that, you know, yeah. I mean, that was something people just said and what an awful, like how much is contained in that one line. Um, and then too, I, I also loved, um, that, that you got in about this, this thing about how human we're animals, you know, and, and that's what human beings are. And I think one of the things to me that, um, that made it such a sort of a salient little clip is that it shows us being animals, which we like try not to do, you know, like, like we're all, the, it's all there inside of us. And yet we, um, we try to hide that fact or something. And so it was putting that on display. So I love that line too, um, about the prince being just a man. Yeah, um, I think we don't think about that a lot when it comes to celebrities, politicians and things like that. These are individual people um, with their own struggles and their own problems. And Will Smith, you know, his life has been, you know, he's been living his life in the public eye for like, most of his life. And just recently, you know, all this stuff about his marriage and things were, you know, also like sort of spilled over into the public um, realm. And we don't keep those things in mind when we're looking at that person. We're just sort of looking at them as an object. Um, and I think I think that's um that's doing a disservice to the person and a disservice to ourselves and our own humanity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so do you want to go ahead and read this? One of the good ones. Sure. One of the good ones. To their surprise, the prince was a black man. 
Fresh kicks, flat lips, tight crown coiled around his head. Still, they loved him. Though everything made it difficult. Wasn't it an uncle who said they're savages? And what about the stories of how they loot and kill then step over their dead? But thoughts of him gave them comfort, something they could cling to when they weren't clinging to their purses, something they could hold when they weren't violently pulling their children away. But a prince is just a man and a man is just an animal cloaked in skin. That's what I tell my son when the prince wounds and is wounded. I cup his brown face in my hands and say, baby, you don't have to be perfect, which must be what they tell their sons when they storm the castle, when they try to take over the world. Yeah, just such a great poem. And and also, I um, I saw a whole bunch of articles like this after the, you know, after I read this one. Um, I think Reggie Jackson has a really good one, of all people. He was the, the first person I ever got an autograph from. So it was weird to see him <laughs> commenting. I hadn't heard from him in so long, but there's a an op-ed by him about the same topic. And um, yeah, it's such an important thing to point out. So thanks so much for, for sharing that and, and joining us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Okay, and now we're going to take a quick break, and we are going to go to our uh, main guest for today, um, Elizabeth Johnston Ambrose. So uh, I'm going to put up a little splash screen and uh, a little bit of bumper music, and we will be right back. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. As I mentioned, today's guest is Elizabeth Johnston Ambrose. Um, Elizabeth Johnston Ambrose is winner of the 2021 Rattle Chapbook Prize for Imago Dei, which I have, of course, right here, the uh, current spring Rattle Chapbook Prize winner. Um, it was included for subscribers. So if you're a subscriber, you have it. If you're not a subscriber, uh, just subscribe, and it will come in the mail like magic. Um, her poetry and prose appear in The Atlantic, The Sun, McSweeney's Internet Tendency, The Weekly Humorist, Mom Egg Review, and other journals and collections. A three-time Pushcart Prize nominee, she is also the author of the chapbook Wild Things, Main Street Rag 2021. A professor of English, her writing and scholarship focus on the myths of gender and sex in literature and popular culture. She also facilitates writing as therapy workshops for breast cancer survivors in Rochester, New York, where she lives with her husband, two daughters, and five rescue animals. And here she is, Elizabeth Johnston Ambrose. Hey, Elizabeth. Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. It's great to see you. It's one of those things where... Um, you know, we, uh, we we talked over email so much, you know, putting the book together and, um, and, and even through Facebook, too, as well. And mm-hmm. so I feel like I've known you for a long time, but I've never seen you or met you. So it's just amazing that we get to have a show like this and we get to, to meet you actually, not in person, but, but something approximating that. Um, so it's really cool to see you. Uh, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm down here in my office and I told my husband to take the dogs to his bedroom so that they don't bark and great chaos <laughs> yeah i mean five rescue animals is it, are they all dogs or are they different various dogs and three cats yeah, yeah. cool yeah we're, we're uh we had have two um and uh i think megan would love to have five <laughs> um well let's start out with a poem uh, what would you like to to sort of lead off the episode with um well if it's okay i'm gonna start with um the first one in the book which is her father calls to explain that daughters aren't easy <clears throat> And I'll read the epigraph, which is from a biblical verse, uh, Psalm 127, three to five. Sons are indeed a heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are sons of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. She was always a disappointment. Mom said dad came to the hospital with baby blue sneakers. On seeing her pink hat through the nursery window, he trashed them and wept. Two more girls before dad got his reward. 
It wasn't easy, he tells her, three daughters. It's Saturday morning. She's hungover again, watching her daughters from the kitchen window as they chase cabbage butterflies across the dew-glittered grass. Tennis rackets swinging, blur of bodies tumbling into each other. And she's thinking of the wild swing of dad's paddle. How he chased her sister down the hall after she wiggled out from where he had pinned her across his lap. Tulip pink imprint from the first whack already blooming on Leah's bottom. He used to say a paddle was less personal. A hand can get carried away, but an upcycled cutting board, that's all business. Spare the rod, spoil the child, and keeping daughters from spoiling requires a proactive approach. After all, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. It's like with these moths she's been battling all summer, seeding marigold and thyme, tying tissue to poles, draping pantyhose across crowns. Undeterred, they laid their eggs. So she tried BT, pungent neem oil, mixed homemade cocktails of garlic, pepper, and dawn. Somewhere along the way, she must have screwed up the recipe. Too many cups of this, not enough teaspoons of that. Lord knows she's never been good at converting anything except maybe marriage into divorce. Not easy, her father sighs again, trying to prevent daughters from turning harlots. He was just trying to do what the Bible taught was right. But anyway, none of his prophylactics work. Neither his belt, nor the paddle, nor later, as they began to fill out and feel out their dangerous, endangered bodies, his other tactics. The picture Bible, with its throng of dogs licking Jezebel's blood. The banned Cindy Lauper gloves, forbidden daytime soaps, post-date interrogations, calling them whore so they could try on the shame ahead of time. Still, both her sisters got pregnant at 19. For her part, she just spent her 20s letting lots of men fuck her and her 30s married to a man who mistook her flailing arms for worship. Under the maple, her oldest swats a flicker of white to the ground, stomps on it. Through the window, she gives her the thumbs up, has promised them a quarter a kill. Later, while they're napping, she'll crouch over her broccoli. One by one, pluck plump larval bodies from their leafy cradles, drop and drown them in soapy water. Sorry, she will say as they sink, but you're destroying my garden. She supposes that's how God felt when Eve ate his apple, how her dad felt raising daughters. Now they have settled into whatever this is. Across the distance, he is collecting himself as he does picking up his conscience like a coat draped across a bar stool. He tells her before hanging up, I must have done something right. Look how you turned out. And that was the opening poem. Uh, her father calls to explain that daughters aren't easy from Imago Dei. Um, Elizabeth Johnson Ambrose's newest book, uh, which is, of course, available for subscribers. Um, so b before we start talking about more about the book, I'm always interested in just getting a, a sense of the background of the poet and, and how you came into poetry. And and you're one of the few guests, actually, I, I'm kind of surprised at this, you know, because I don't really use, I don't read people's bios. I don't know where people come from. But you seem to be one of the first or one of the only guests we've had who comes from a very academic place. Like you got your PhD. It feels like you got your PhD in literature well before you became a, a creative writer, at least publishing. So yeah. so what was that journey like? How did you um, get into uh, into, into writing poetry from that first, uh, first sort of path you were on. 
Well, I've been writing uh, poetry, I always say, since I could hold a crayon. I, I remember in making up songs, I have a horrible voice, so my alternative is to, to write the songs, um, and, I, and I have no musical background. Um, but I remember uh, sitting on my parents' swing in the backyard and making up songs, uh, you know, and I must have been five or six years old. So I was always writing poetry. I always was drawn to poetry. Um, my grandmother used to read me, you know, of course, like everybody else, Dr. Seuss and, and uh, all those children's books. And I love those. Those are some of my fondest memories. Um, but I was, I was also just really drawn to gender studies and uh, literature in general. And so nobody told me that, you know, a life in poetry was a possible avenue. <laughs> and I was already being scared away from becoming an English teacher anyway. Um, but I made that leap. I, and I went to WVU and got my master's and PhD in 18th century Brit Lit there with a focus on women novelists in the 18th century. Um, but I did, I guess I just, I didn't have a lot of confidence in my, in my own poetry. I would write for myself. I had all these journals full of like um, little pieces of poems. Um, you could even probably go back to any notes I was taking in grad school and you'd see notes scribbled on the side, like bits and pieces of poems. Um, but it was actually after, uh, after I got divorced in 2000, uh, 2009, I started hanging around much more with a, a group of women who uh, I teach with, but who are also writers. And we formed a writers group and they were, they actually had formed at first and they invited me in. And that was really the impetus. That's when I really started. Um, you know, I had mentioned to them at like a, a, you know, party. Oh yeah. I write some poems on my own. And they were like, come, come join this workshop. So that was really it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. And so what is your um, your scholarly work like? Like I, I, I meant to, I, it was a busy week, so I didn't get to read. I wanted to read, find and read some of your academic papers, but um, but I didn't get a chance to. So what is, uh, what is it that you write about? I started, um, I started 18th century British literature. I actually, when I went to, so I grew up in this incredibly conservative household. And when I went to um, undergrad at New Mexico State, they made me take a gender studies course. And I was like kicking and screaming. I didn't want to go in. Um, you know, my dad had told me about all these feminazis and so it's very, you know, aware not to get, you know, uh, brought into that world. But I remember sitting in the classroom the first day and the, the women's studies teachers were talking about things. And I was like, this is my, this is, they're like talking about my life. Like, these are things that they're, they're, this is about me. And I was just hooked. I just started taking as many women writing courses as I could. And I was really drawn to the 18th century because um, that's when women started writing in mass. Um, literacy was growing, et cetera. Um, so that's what I studied throughout grad school. But once I graduated, uh, I started becoming really interested in popular culture. Um, and so I think the first thing I got published was about reality television. I was comparing roles of women in um, uh, The Bachelor uh, and Jill Millionaire to the women in the 18th century novels that I was reading who were competing for a sexy bachelor. Uh, so I, I also was really drawn to Medusa. So I have a lot of work on um, representations of Medusa in popular culture. Um, I used to teach a course called Female Icons in popular culture. And so we'd study you know, Eve, Delilah, Dorothy from Wizard of Oz, Little Red Riding Hood, Queen Elizabeth, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, that's so fascinating, thinking of, um, you know, The Bachelor as, like, characters in an in a, in a 18th century novel. <laughs> that's, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, you can totally see it, but it never occurred to me, um, you know, competing for, you know, Mr. Darcy or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Th- that's fascinating. Um, and, and it's interesting, too, so... You know, growing up in a in a fundamentalist household, I mean, you, I mean, there's a very strict 
concept of what gender is and then nothing else, right? I mean, it's just that biblical idea of the, the Adam and Eve story, you know? And then, so do you think, I mean, that to play into what the book's about, um, is that what drew you to gender studies? It, it, like, the, I mean, it seems like a whole world would open up, you know, after being so constricted, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because there are, in that fun, it's all a literal reading of the Bible. So it's very, very clear. This is, there's no gray areas. And so you are, you know, this is how a woman behaves. This is how a man behaves. And even though my father pushed us to go to college, it was always go to college in case a man leaves you at some point and you have to have a, a job. Um, but, but, you know, primarily your job is going to be getting married and having babies. And so, um, I, I just I and the other thing I should bring this up is that we were we had to take notebooks to Sunday school and so we had to take notes on what the sermon the sermon was about and do close readings of the Bible and so we were always like analyzing metaphor and symbolism and that was like an easy move then when I went in to study English it was like oh I've been doing this my whole life I've been analyzing closely reading the words um, the word yeah mm-hmm. yeah and so I mean that must have been. Um, you know, upsetting to your your father in particular, right? I mean, sending off to college and then you know a complete reversal of basically everything. Like you can't get farther from from a fundamentalist upbringing than a, than a gender yeah. studies professor, right? Yeah, could not get further from it. Um, and it's interesting because he has four children and the three daughters are all. We've all gone one way, and my brother has kind of stayed the path with my dad. <laughs> yeah, I always think like you just can't like keep kids down, you know. I mean, I, I always think of my cousin, and I probably shouldn't tell the story, but but my cousin, my my family was very strict in Rochester, New York, and um, and um, they wouldn't let him eat any sugar. Like they were very like nutrition, like vitamins and all healthy foods, and so he used to s- steal uh, sugar packets from the Seven Eleven at the store and hide them like it was drugs, and then like down the sugar after everybody went to bed and um and that's kind of what happens when you when you have something denied like we have a whole human spirit that needs to explore things and if you try to hide something it it, it flowers out even more yeah yeah so I, I so i was i was really the picture of like a very very good kid um holding down the fort and then i went to college you know 2500 miles away and that's when i got to explore <laughs> <laughs> So the distance is helpful. Uh, well, let's go back to another poem. Uh, what do you want to read next? Um, oh, I'm, her father talks to her about sex, which is on page 15. Okay, thanks. And this was uh, is a pantomime. So this was really, I think, the second one I had tried. And this just seemed to me the perfect form for this. Um, her father talks to her about sex. If your right hand offends, chop it off, throw it away. Better for you to lose one part of yourself than suffer your whole body to burn. Throw it away. Better for you to pluck out your eye. If you don't suffer, your whole body will burn. Better to be blind. Better to starve. Pluck out your eye. If you don't, think of Eve, naked and ashamed. Better to be blind. Better to be starved than to be exiled from your father's love. Think of Eve, naked and ashamed. Think of your runaway sister, forever exiled from your father's love. Think of Delilah, of Jezebel, Lot's wife. Think of your runaway sister forever. Think of those girls opening their legs. Think of Delilah, of Jezebel, Lot's wife. Cut off your tongue, cut out your heart. Think of those girls opening their legs. Suffer, 
your whole body burns. Cut off your tongue. Cut out your heart. Throw it away. Better for you. And as her father talks about sex, another book from Imago Dei. Um, and, and since we were talking about the, you know, your, your, your father, um, the, the question always comes up with a book like this, which is very confessional. Um, you know, what was your family's reaction been to it? Have your, have your, have your family read it? Um, <laughs> um, my, so when I told my mom, I had, it had, when I sent it, I did not, I really did not think that it was going to win. You know, I was like, Oh, I get my, my yearly subscription of rattle, which I love. It's my favorite. And, um, so when I found out that I had won, I had, I was like out of my mind, happy. And then I had this moment of panic, like, Oh, this is, this is going to go out to a lot of people and I have to, uh, tell my family. So I started sending, I told my mom and I started sending snippets to my mom. I'm like, it's like feeding, uh, you know, like little Cheerios to a baby. I was like, I'm just going to send you a little bit at a time and we're going to get increasingly more difficult. And you tell me when you want me to stop. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, she was wonderful. Actually, she was really good. You know, she'd read a couple and she'd say, send me more. Um, and we actually ended up having a really wonderful conversation about, uh, what it was. And, and it's not, I mean, so it's autobiographical there, there, you're always playing a little bit with the, mm-hmm. the facts of the matter. Uh, my sisters, um, both have read it and, um, my one sister did the cover for it. And she actually already, she's a painter. So she already had a cover that I chose. Um, and both of them are very, very encouraging and, and grateful. My one sister was really grateful actually, um, that I wrote about it. And then my father and my brother don't know that I wrote it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's um, it's interesting because every time there's like a personal, you know, a personal book about family members and things, I always ask what people, you know, what the reaction is because everybody's curious. And um, and it, every time it seems like it opens up conversation for people. Like you would think that it's something that nobody wants to talk about and everybody hates it, but it turns out in most cases, I mean, who knows every time you can't say, but in a lot of cases, it's something that people like wish they could talk about. Um, but then haven't. And so having that as like an object to start discussion, actually, a lot of people have said it brings families and in, in together and like heals relationships, just writing about stuff that that nobody wants to, you know, they wanted to talk about, but didn't want to talk about at the same time, you know? Yeah, yeah. I have. A, it's funny because I, I have a really hard time talking about uh, my, you know, how I feel about things. You know, it's something my husband and I work on really hard is, is, um, we both come from kind of a crazy chaotic family. And so we have a really hard time. Like we work really hard on that. Um, and yet I have no problem, like, you know, putting it down and works and sending it out to an anonymous public, um, or what feels to me at the beginning, like an anonymous public. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and you mentioned the cover, which I just love this cover art. I'll put it on the screen again. Um, and the camera's a little washed out, so you can't really see how great it is. Um, but you've seen it if you have the book. Um, but this is your sister's painting. And, yes. um, and I think originally, didn't you say that it was originally a different orientation? And it yeah. Was, uh, yeah. So I, I found that really interesting. You might explain just what happened with that. So she, so she has, she did the cover for my last book too. Well, she, she's a painter. She's a poet. Um, and she has, and she also is drawn to images of women. And so, if you um, walk through our house, there's just images, of beautiful images of, of these kind of like it's like magical realism, um, very abstract images of women. And I, this had been hanging on her wall for a long time. And so, when I did wild Th- or wild things, that was a pretty easy pick for me because she had Alita and the Swan mm-hmm. um, sort of image. So I used that. But this one, we looked at a couple different ones. I actually did a, I think I did a vote. 
uh, with some friends, like, what do you think would work best? And then the more I thought about this red one, I was like, that's the one I want it to be. It was turned the other way. Um, and then somehow when I sent it to you, it flipped. And I don't know why she took a picture of the painting on her wall. And then it was, I was like, that's even now it's actually, there's no, tr this had to be the image because it looks, you know, it's this kind of womb like image, this per this cocoon image and this woman who looks like she's coming down. She's both pregnant and being born. And I thought that it just seemed like it was perfect. Yeah, it really is. And, and what's fascinating about that is it's just the way that accidents make creativity, you know, and it's the same kind of way poems work. You know, you almost like iterate and then see, oh, and then you fall into a mistake. You know, didn't mean to send it upside down. And then it adds a whole other layer of uh, metaphor when you flip it upside down that, yeah. that no one had really thought of. And it, yeah. it seems to me like that's the way poems happen, too. And what poems do, you know, is they turn the world upside down a little bit so you can see it in a different way more clearly. So I just thought that was a cool little anecdote. And it does. It feels like, you know, both being birthed and giving birth, which is such a cool, um, a cool thing. I'll just put it on the screen one last time just so you can see, you know. Um, but and, and your sister, I, I went to her website, um, which she made, I think, just recently. Right. And um, she's got a lot of wonderful paintings, like very, very um, in the style that uh a very distinctive style and uh, really cool to look at it. So I recommend everybody, what is the, if I can remember, I'll say the, I think the link is on here, right? Um, right beyond the back. I think it's on the, yeah, it's on the notes. It's a uh, uh, bassoon-heptagon-khfb. It's dot squarespace.com is the website. So go find that. But if you have the book, you can find it there, but I encourage everybody to go and, or just Google her name and, uh, and find more paintings. Um, let's see. So if anybody has any questions, um, for Elizabeth, please do pass them along in the chat windows, either on Facebook or YouTube. I'm watching both and I'll pass anything along, but I want to make sure we get a good number of poems. So let's hear another one. Another one. Okay. All right. So this is, uh, Tristesse. It's on page 21. Oh, thanks. Let's Sorry. Find the table of contents. Crying after sex isn't sexy. She tried not to do it. Pressed her face to her pillow so they wouldn't see, but it happened every damned time. She wondered if each went home. Told his roommates about the girl at the club. Thigh-high boots, leather skirt, how she pulled him out to the dance floor, sweat slick, or slipped her arm through his, led him to the bar, practically drank him under the table. Out last call, she reached into his pocket, found his cigarettes, his keys, asked, where's your car? At her place, like something out of a porno, how she pushed him onto the bed, climbed on top, began bucking and moaning so loud, her roommate banged on the door, yelled for her to shut the fuck up. But she just threw her head back, howling, like something hungry and loosed. Then, after all that show, burst into tears. The less experienced ones tried to comfort her, awkwardly patted her arm while reaching for their pants. The others just made for the door. Later, after she was married, she would hear Oprah call this post-coital tristesse, post-sex blues, like a Crayola shade, like a Sherwin-Williams palette. But if she was a color, it was the ring of scum in a draining sink, the smudge of an overzealous eraser, water in a vase of rotting stems, the hungry pit of a disinterested yawn of skin snagged in a zipper, 
the smear of moths dragged across a windshield, the color of a gate shutting, a psalm book closing. And that was Tristesse again from uh, Imago Dei. And um, let's see. So, so one of the things that, um, that I loved about this book is just how sort of um, I'm free and sort of dreamy it feels. Like you move through a lot of different, um, um, sub, you know, the, the same subject matter, but through a kind of a lens where there's a lot of playfulness and a lot of um, exploration. Um, what is your process like in writing a poem? I mean, like there's certain lines where the, the syntax sort of breaks apart and there's the, uh, the poems have all different shapes and, and there's sort of a way that the, it feels very intimate, but then also generalized. So it could be other people, other stories drifting in. There's just this kind of dreamy quality to it all. Um, and, and so what is your writing process like that you came up with that, that style? Um, and, and how does a poem like that come to be? Like, do you, are there many drafts? Do you sort of free write and then carve? Like, like how, what is your process like in writing these poems? I, you know, I think it differs with every poem. Um, so that one, a lot, a lot of times the title comes last too. Um, you know, I don't know really what I want what I'm writing about when I begin, I just, a lot of times it begins with a line, you know, like somebody says something to me or I think a line and I'm like, Oh, I want, I need to write that down. And it, and it does, it sort of free flows from there. Um, and other times like, like with this one, I knew that I knew I wanted to use that form. Um, I wanted to create a sense of really being closed in and the, the repetitiveness of the, of the dogma, um, the way, you know, the way that, that young, young men and women, but young women in particular are kind of inculcated just over and over and over, told the same things in the way that it sinks in. And so I wanted to have a sense of feeling kind of trapped. Um, and so I think with that one, I wrote the first stanza and then I just let the form kind of birth the, the poem itself. Um, and I think when you have really hard things to write about, sometimes I think sometimes the form is comforting. Um, it it, it kind of gives you a layer of protection, maybe. Um, where uh, you know, I, I, and I think too, writing in third person can be really helpful as too to distance. You know, when I'm teaching creative writing, I tell my students if they're writing about something hard, we'll try to switch it to third person. See if that layer of that barrier is going to give you a little bit of protection um, from, from the intimacy of the of the emotion. Yeah. Yeah. This uh, the first question here is as Dick Westheimer asked them, did you even find yourself getting so deep in legitimate danger, which is what Frost called it, that you backed away for a moment, afraid of where the poem might go? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, for sure. Um, so like, and even reading some of these, you know, I've been practicing, practicing because reading them out loud, even, you know, um, in, in many what is one of the poems I'm going to read today is about is called my sister's demons. And so one of the, one of the modes of survival, I think for people who grow up in any kind of trauma is to move forward, right. To, to make for yourself a new life, not to think about the past. And so when you're writing about the past, it's very easy to get sucked back into it and to, and to kind of find yourself flailing around um, in the emotion. And so there were definitely moments when I was writing and I was like, okay, I gotta, <laughs> gotta put that down. And there were also moments where I knew I had things to write about and I just had to force myself to sit there in it. Mm -hmm. And my writing group was really good too at, they're wonderful. So if I give them a poem, um, they're very good at saying, Elizabeth, you're not being honest here. You know, you've, you've moved away cause it's too painful. Really go back and push in. Yeah. And I guess I hadn't really thought of it in this, in this way, but I think what, what, uh, 
uh, Dick was mentioning here is exactly what's what's so compelling about the book is there's that that feeling of legitimate danger. Like there's something that, like like do I want to touch this in the past? You know, and 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 um, it feels real, really authentic in that respect. Um, yeah. So um, uh, Mary Janet or Mary. Um, or Mario or Janet, I guess, Rodriguez um, says, I would love to hear more about the relationship between biblical metaphor and your poetry. Um, so maybe in general as well, but, but also can you explain the title and how the, the book got that title and then and how the, the um, biblical metaphors come into play in this book? Sure. Um, so I remember very distinctly the night that I decided I was going to do a chat, like a whole chat book just on uh, writing about the experience of growing up in the church. Um, I had not picked out Imago Day as the name yet, um, but I. But all through grad school, I had been really fascinated by uh, Jacques Lacan, who's a French psychoanalyst, and he has this um, theory uh, about the Imago, which is the moment when a child looks in the mirror and sees themselves and recognizes themselves as other, and at that point always feels separated from themselves. They're always fractured, and for the rest of their lives, according to Lacan, they're, they're trying to seek some kind of wholeness. Um, but they're also comforted by the sense of lack, so they're pursuing both lack and wholeness. Um, and I just, I was, I, I was really drawn to that, and probably in retrospect, because of the um, religious background or even traumatic background, which where you do have a real sense of fracturing, right? Like the, the, how you want to behave in life or the emotions that you feel, you're constantly being told repress, repress, repress. Um, and so that was really interesting to me. And so I think I, I don't know if I had written a poem yet about that, about Lacan in particular, but that was definitely in the back of my head. And then I started working with images of cocoons and I, and I was like, oh, I don't want to do like a butterfly. I feel butterfly feels like really overdone to me. And I didn't want to do that. But then I started researching. A lot of what I do when I write is I start to research the, the animal or whatever I'm using as a metaphor. And I just stumbled on like, oh, the Imago. That's the, that's the name of it inside the, in the larval mode. And then I, it all came together. It was like this flash, like, oh, Imago Day, image of the father, um, Lacan's Imago and then the Imago of the cocoon. And then I went back and worked through the poem images of butter, uh, moss and butterflies and cocoons mm-hmm. more in each poem to thread them together. Yeah. And, and can you say more um, uh, just about the religious, um, the religious aspect of, of the, the metaphor that you use? Um, um, because I just want to make sure I cover um, um, yeah. Yeah, Mario and Janet's question here. Yeah. So um, the Bible is full of really bad women, not a lot of good women. You've got the Virgin Mary, but she is, you know, she's the Virgin Mary, right? And she's, uh, you know, unattainable. Um, you cannot be, right? So she's this this height of perfection that you can't possibly as a human woman reach. Um, and, but then the a contrast is all of these really bad women, Delilah and Jezebel and, and Eve even, you know, is, is, a, is a bad insofar as she, you know, makes the whole world fall down by giving the a- apple to Adam. Um, and so I was really drawn to um, images of those women and the, and the mistakes that they had made and the ways that they had been used for centuries to, to keep women from making those bad decisions. And they're, and they're really, you see that repeat. I'm also really interested in Medusa and you see the same sorts of tropes repeated from one bad woman to the next. They really are all making the same kinds of mistakes and all represent the same sorts of dangers um, in particular for men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, how many? Um, isn't it the case? I can't remember. I think I read something where there's there, there's a crazy ratio of men to women in the Bible. Isn't there like like fifty times as many men or women than women or something like that? I'm not sure what the, but I'm sure that's what it is. I mean, mm-hmm. if you, I could list if you gave me a test, I could list tons and tons of men from the Bible. Right, they're the patriarchs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, let's hear another poem. I want to make sure we uh, we get through en- enough. All right. I'm going to read uh, My Sister's Demons. Her Sister's Demons. I switched to the first person. <laughs> she invites her sister for the holiday, but Leah wants to bring her demons, says they can play with hers, says they're better trained since last time, haven't had an accident in months. Leah's even taught them tricks, lay down, play dead. At night, they sleep in a crate. Still, she worries. She's kept hers small, trained them to be satisfied with scraps, not to beg, to leave it. Not her sister. Leah's been feeding them right from the table, letting them lick her plate, sometimes getting down on all fours to suckle them herself. Now Leah tells her they're a package deal. No demons, no sister. But she knows what will happen. It will be just like last time. They'll gate them in the back, and she'll start to help her sister unpack. It won't take long before Leah's demons charge right through the invisible fence and right on their heels, her own little imps. A lot of them, loose and howling like a goddamn pack of feral strays. They'll tear through her cul-de-sac, dig holes in garden beds, nose through garbage, terrorize small children. When at last they slink home, mud-slimed, stinking of shit, some still-warm victim dangling from one of their red froth maws, it will take her hours to scrub them clean. She'll be making apologies for days. Her husband won't be happy. She tries to explain this to her sister, what could happen if they get loose. Don't be silly, Leah assures her. I've been letting them run free all these years and see, they always come home to eat. They know the hand that feeds them. And that was her sister's demons um, from Imago Day. Um, so there's another question here about, about your craft and your writing style. So um, Potter O'Donohue says, um, 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 does Elizabeth write quickly with little edits or do they come slowly with constant rewrites? The poems uh, seem very vi- real, visceral. I can't imagine them being coldly crafted, but are they? <laughs> um, I want to say that a lot of these did not get a lot of revision. I think I feel like a lot of these came out pretty whole. Um, the 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 pantoum, obviously, because I'm trying to repeat particular lines, and so I might go in and I might go in and and when I went back and I was trying to thread through the image of the the cocoon. Um, and bring these poems together a little bit more closely, then yes, um, yeah, I, it's line edits. But I think the, I think the form of the, like the whole idea of the poem, I know what I'm doing. I know what I want to do, um, and, and it comes out pretty mm-hmm. pretty quickly. At least for this, there's other poems I've worked on. You know, I have a poem I've been working on for four years. I can't get it right. Um, <laughs> I know th- I know it's I know there's something good there, but I cannot I can't figure out what it where its heart is. And, um, and how often do you get to write? Like, do you have a regular writing process? Um, you know, being a, a professor, um, and, and having to teach, um, that's a lot of work. Do you, do you, do you find carve out time in the day 
to uh, write regularly or how often do you get to do it? Not every, not every day. Um, I'm lucky that I, that I do have, I can take summers off. Um, and so I do a lot of writing in the summer. Um, in the, in the winter break, we usually have about four solid weeks where we don't have any obligations or real obligations at school. So I can write then my writing group, we try to meet once a month. Um, and that's really good. I mean, I found that when I, when you know that you have a group coming up and you want, you have to have something to share. So that gives me empathy. You know, I just find a way. Um, but right now it's, it's March. I'm, I just joined the, the write a poem a day thing uh, to see if that would help me because this time of the semester, it's about all I can do just to stay afloat. I'm grading and mm-hmm. parenting and taking animals to vets. And um, you mentioned that a writing group, is that the same writing group that you started with like all those you know years ago? Yeah. yeah there's, 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 uh, five women in it. One of them's honorary. Uh, she's sort of moved on, but, um, one's a poet, one's a playwright. Uh, mostly, uh, she also does fiction. She's got a novel. Another one's a short story writer. Um, one's a creative nonfiction writer. So I, I like that we all come at it. I'm the only poet. We all come at it from different, um, strengths. Oh, that's interesting. I, you know, usually the groups, you know, sort of focus on one genre, so, yeah. um, so how, do you, do you think that, um, you know, how do you think you're informed by, by writing poetry amongst, uh, prose writers? I, well, well, they're, they have helped me a lot. So my playwright, um, any kind of dialogue, if I'm going to use dialogue or scene setting. So doing a poem that has a scene I, has been really, she's really good at, at, she has to be right. So she's really good at dialogue and scene. And then my, um, Angelique, who's the creative nonfiction writer, um, writing the details of the personal life, you know, and so that's something that like when I'm teaching my students, my, my new intro to creative writing, they always want to generalize because they want it to be as available as possible to everybody. And I learned from her, I think, um, how important the details of like the 7-Eleven with the French fries and the, you know, Pepsi and the SpaghettiOs, all the little details that are very individual that also translate. Um, that's been amazing. Um, I, I, and I think I, I'd like to th- think they're all really good at editing line editing too. They're all re- really good at tight prose. Mm-hmm. And so that helps pulling out all the, the um, fat of a sentence to try and get distill it down. Yeah. I mean, now that I think about it, it seems like the perfect kind of setup to have um, those different angles and sort of specialties all working on what you're working on. Um, yeah. It seems like a lucky thing to have. Um, yeah. I think maybe we should move and in, in, in show um, share a little bit from the other chapbook, um, okay. Wild Things. Um, can you? What is the? I only have these two poems here. There's uh, Wild Things there. Oh yeah, that's another picture. Yeah, another painting by your sister. Yeah, and I don't even know if she knew about Lita and Swan, the Swan at the time. I remember looking at it and saying, "Oh, that's Lita and the Swan," and her kind of looking at me. But yeah. Um, so, so this book is largely persona poems or poems about famous women from history, uh, literature, myth, the news, the news cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to read Delilah Scorned. Um, and for those who aren't familiar, Delilah is the woman who took down Samson, God's man, um, uh, whose power rested in his hair, his long hair. And so she got him drunk and cut it uh, and he lost all his power. And the, and the first, I also want to say the first line of this comes from my friend, uh, Joe Johnston, uh, no relation. Uh, we were at a party one night. Somebody was asking me about process earlier. So I wanted to mention this. And he said that a girlfriend had given him up for Lent. And I said, that's a poem. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Delilah scorned. He calls to say he gave me up for Lent. But being as I am no believer and not inclined to sacrifice, 
I defy his God. This makes him unhappy. Now we're fighting, he with me, me with his church. I intend to convert him to the nihilism of my love. He intends to sentence me to lifetime movies. We shall see whose spirit is stronger, a throwing of staffs, a measuring of snakes. I am not afraid. I know what 40 days in the desert can do to a man, thirst like a trumpet crumbling Jericho's walls. He'll come and I'll be waiting in the shade of my tent, goblet in one hand, scissors in the other. And that was a Delilah Scorned uh, from Wild Things, the, the other chapbook that Elizabeth published this year. Um, so so what was it like? I mean, the, the two chapbooks coming out in the same year, um, how are they similar and how are they different? Uh, I, I, they're very different. Um, so, and I, and I've described the first chapbook as kind of being my first foray. And, you know, uh, a lot of them are early poems, poems where I'm really, I'm creating distance between myself. And so it was much easier for me to start, I think, start talking about personal experience by moving through the stories of other women, um, famous women, uh, or finding connections between myself and women in the news, um, uh, so it's it, it's largely I don't I don't know how many first person poems there are in here or second person poems. It's it's largely about other women, even though of course it's about my experience as a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, and so this is from uh, Main Street Rag Press, who do, they do great chat books too. Um, yeah. What has um you know because I'm I'm just curious just what other publishers are doing. Um, what was the experience of um of putting the chat book out? Uh, with Main Street Rag, like, like, um, like from the uh, a marketing standpoint, like, like you know, it's tough because there haven't been a lot of readings and things. And I think the best thing about chapbooks is that you have something to sell, you know, during readings and, and share that way. Um, so has it been hard to get that book out? It has, it has been. Um, so it, so it actually, it was a semi-finalist or a finalist in a contest uh, in 2018. Um, and then, and I was offered publication and a timeline and I, and I started working on it and then th- things got in the way at home and I kind of let it go by the wayside. And I reached out to him. I actually went to the um, annual writers conference, the AWP conference in 2020, mm-hmm. the week that everything blew up uh, because of COVID and most people had not gone and my writing group had decided to go ahead and go. And I ran into him and he said, are we still doing that chat book? And I said, yes, I, you know, got all these other things going on and then COVID hit. And so I delayed it again. And then I actually, you know, got the rattle publication before I even had told him, finished this, the edits on this. And so um, I told him about the rattle publication and he said, okay, let's go ahead and get the wild things out first. Um, And so, yeah, I've done, I did a virtual reading. I I did do a book launch, um, but it's been hard to, to do much else right now. Yeah, well, hopefully a lot of people listening will pick up a copy. Where's the best place to order it? Uh, you can order it from Main Street Rag Press. Um, if you want a signed copy, you could email me. I'd be happy to send you a signed copy. Very cool. Well, uh, let's hear the other poem um, from, from the book that we have. Okay. Oh, and this is a first-person one. So this is uh, about Barbies. I think Barbie uh, is a really fascinating figure um, in popular culture, too. Lots written about her, um, lots of poetry books about her, too. So this is called Waist Deep. My Barbies had a lot of sex. Of course, they also did what other Barbies do, walk down the aisle, attend the prom, ride horses, birth babies. It was the 80s. 
My parents couldn't afford the Corvette, so Barbie and Ken jetted around in a roller skate, flaunted fashions, scissored from socks. At night, got tucked into a shoebox bedded with washcloths. But there were other ways to play. Captive Barbie, stripped and stuck in a parakeet's cage. End of days Barbie, the world exploded and survivors forced to repopulate. Polygamous Ken and his multiple wives who comforted each other but refused to revolt. When I turned 10, my mother baked a cake, plunged Barbie in its frosted petticoat waist deep. I opened gifts, a Michael Jackson beat it doll, red Michael Jackson jacket. We moonwalked across the grass, grabbed our crotches. Then the neighbor boy grabbed me, pushed me up against the house, stuck his tongue in my mouth. I liked it, but squilled and screamed the word I'd heard watching Donahue with my mother, rape. He pushed me away and went home. That night, Michael Jackson stripped and slipped into bed beside Malibu Barbie, placed his stiff gloved hand on her hard nippleless breast. Midge and Skipper rattled inside their boxes, scolded, Ken won't want you now. Yeah, and that was another book, Waist Deep, from uh, Wild Things. So I um, hope everybody picks up a copy of that from Main Street Rag Press. Um, the, the, uh, I wanted to ask about this um, writing as therapy workshops that you do for breast cancer survivors. Um, what has that been like? How long have you been doing it? And how did you get into that? Um, I've been doing that about 11 years. So before I was doing that, um, one of the women um, in, my, in my writing workshop, actually, she and her sister had founded a, a nonprofit called Take Back the News. And it uh, held newspapers accountable for the ways that they represented rape. Um, and so as part of that nonprofit, we decided that we wanted to host uh, some writing as therapy workshops for survivors of sexual assault. And so we did that a couple of times. Um, and then because, because one of my colleagues knew I was doing that, uh, she was working at the breast cancer coalition as a facilitator. And she said, can you come in and, and I can't do it this semester. Would you come in? And, and so I've been doing that 11 years. Uh, and the, the theory behind that being you've got these traumas that people have had no control over in their lives. Uh, and by writing about it, uh, they can rewrite it. They can, they can rest control, um, and, and create their own narrative and, and find healing through that. So I've been doing that about 11 years, maybe 12. Yeah, and, and I think you probably know that that's one of the things we really strongly believe in here at Rattle is just the, the power of writing for psychological healing and, and then manifesting as physical healing too. Um, what is, um, like, how does a, a workshop go? Um, you know, like what kind of like prompts do you do? How do you get people to open up and, and what kind of writing are they doing? Um, is there any, if, if somebody wanted to do this themselves, I guess is what I'm wondering, like how would you go about it and what, what works best? Um, so the, the one thing that I love about doing it is there's no grading and there's no evaluation of how good something is. Um, and w what's really interesting is when you take that away, that the honesty, the authenticity that, that comes out is, is just so beautiful and moving when people aren't restrained by the idea that somebody's going to evaluate this, you know? Um, so the, the prompts that we do, and I'm not the only facilitator. In fact, one, another one of my writing workshop group members um, t teaches it as well, we, and we alternate. So I do about two a year, they're five weeks long. They meet once a week for two hours um, for those five weeks. And, and usually I do two prompts in that two hours. So I begin with a prompt and I tell them, you don't have to write about your journey through breast cancer. You can write about anything, whatever, whatever comes to mind. Um, it's a lot of, it's mostly nonfiction. Um, 
sort of memoir writing. So it's, uh, you know, you might say, uh, write about a part of your body. And I usually begin with a poem because um, that's what I'm drawn to. So I might begin with a poem like Lucille Clifton's to, you know, to my hips um, uh, and um, use that as a, as a way to engage them and then, you know, pick a part of your body and, and write about it. They write for 15 minutes. Um, and then I give them the opportunity to share. And, and a lot of them do more, more share than don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and we actually put together, they wanted after years of doing it, they wanted to do a book. And so uh, Angelique Stevens and I, uh, she's in my writing group, we put together a book. Um, we got some funds from a local organization, Just Poets of Rochester, uh, and the Breast Cancer Coalition supported us. And we, we, um, they, they, it was poetry and prose all about uh, their journeys. Yeah, and, and so how, um, one of the things talking about to um, James Pennebaker in that winter issue we did that I kind of, I, maybe being biased as somebody who loves love poetry, I sort of think of it as a, a lifelong pursuit. But but when I'm talking to him, it was clear he thinks of it more as a um, a kind of medicine. Like like well, like he'll he'll do sort of expressive writing when he's feeling some kind of stress or something he can't figure out or some kind of like un you know undifferentiated anxiety or something, and he feels like people who've gone through sort of intense traumatic experiences benefit a lot from that. Um, so so how long do these workshops last, and and what do you think like the ideal length is? Like, do you think that after a certain number of sessions, you sort of get what you can you know, get the healing you can get out of people? I think they can go on indefinitely. In fact, we have, um, I probably for the first eight years, it was the same group of women, um, you know, with, with some new people here. In fact, they had to start limiting it at, because the same group of women kept taking the workshops. And so they're like, we need to divide this up, um, you know, because they were creating such a bond with each other that newcomers felt sort of left out. Um, but I know that even the ones that aren't taking it now or continuing to do, to do writing of some kind or another. I think I can go on and you're never going to, I don't think you're ever going to access all the trauma and and tragedy enough that you're just like, Oh, now I'm, now I'm done. Now I will be happy forever. And I don't need poetry anymore. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, life is one of perpetual trauma. That's just what the human experience is. Um, And and it's interesting too. Do you think that, because you mentioned you started writing after your divorce, do you think that that was part of it for you that, that, you know, getting past the divorce, um, the emotions yeah. of that. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think just on a very literal level, it opened up time for me. Right. I mean, you, you're not, you, I had two children, but I had now no husband to worry about, um, to, to take time. So I was using a lot of that and I didn't have the children every other week or a weekend because they were going, so that opened up space for me. But I also, you know, I made new deeper connections with the women in my life because of that. And, and it was because of that then writing group. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we should go probably go back to the uh, the chapbook. Do you want to read another uh, poem? Sure. Um, so, rapture is the second to last poem in there. It's on page thirty-two. Um, and I just, uh, I want to say too, that some, cause somebody else had asked, where did the poems come from? Sometimes I had been during COVID, I had been talking to people and, and also, uh, concerning arguments about the, the natural world falling apart and people not taking care of it. And why isn't anybody worried about climate change? And I, and especially people who are religious, who are supposed to be taking care of the earth. And I said, well, if you grow up in evangelicalism, you you don't think the world you're, you're just waiting to be lifted out of here. So why take care of the earth in this, in this 
fundamental. Um, so that's where this, this poem came from in part. And it begins with a, a quotation from um, the Bible book, Matthew. Lay, up, lay not up for yourself treasure upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt. At the first news of pandemic, thinking this might really be the end, finally. And in that moment, feeling like a fish released from rough and awkward hands, arcing into the silk envelope of a stream, weightless. Like when she's been dancing, spinning in heated centrifuge until the body's layers separate, ripple out from the center. Or after the three Manhattans, it's taken to strip the thick veneer of surface, let it slip and puddle at her ankles. But all that relief short-lived. More like after the water's skin accepts the penny thrown at it. Slight disturbance, momentary flutter, then still again. Every wish swallowed. Because although she tried, she could never shed the inherited corpse. The sarcophagus of heavy flesh and bone couldn't unzip herself from its thick-walled tenement, abandon it drowned at the bottom of some baptismal tub. Maybe the pastor should have held her under longer. Maybe the problem is she has been all surface, sins that should have weighted her like stones instead keeping her afloat. Surfeit of nothing. The anchoring paradox, at once all body and nobody. Because whether you starve it or pour all manner of things into it, you still have to believe a body matters, that its weight on this earth is worth inhabiting, even when the earth itself isn't worth inhabiting because it's going to fall away soon too. Why invest? Why try when you grow up expecting the end times any day? All those days she came home from school to an empty house, neighbors not answering her knock, no one picking up the phone. She convinced herself all the good people had been raptured, lifted like air. And her? Left behind, weighted to the earth because she was never any good at being good. So when her mom walked through the door balancing groceries on her hip and the neighbor's Chevy growled into their drive and the phone vibrated against the wall, a boy calling, she resolved to be better, one way or another, to weigh less. That was the end. I flipped to the wrong page. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that was Rapture, again, from Imago Day. And um, a few people have mentioned um, uh, how good the endings are of these poems. And um, so I was wondering about that. Like, how do you find, how do you find where a poem ends? And, and because they also, they're the kind of poems that like come to a place and then drift and move into another place. Like, like in our critiques, I always talk about how you have to t find a door and take the door to a new space to, to surprise us. And, and these poems do that all the time. So it feels like almost any place you end, there could be another beginning. You know what I mean? And so how do you find which one is the right ending and where a poem should be? And, and, and what do you think about just the last line and how it should feel in a, in a poem? Um, I think that's the hardest part of writing poetry. I almost always know where I want to begin. Um, I almost never know where I want to end. <laughs> and I think, um, I, I, I think that because you want it, you want to nail it, right? You want to nail that last line. You want to make sure that that pe people walk away knowing. I mean, obviously, I want people to get their own interpretations out of it, but you you want to make sure that 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 initial idea that's in there that it really comes home um, and surprise and it's surprising. Um, 
So I don't know. Uh, th- that I'll meditate on for a long time. And sometimes uh, I went to a great workshop with Nicole Brown and Jessica Jacobs. Um, and Nicole Brown was a former uh, Rattle Chat book um, winner. And she, um, we, they did a great, some great prompts. It was at the Palm Beach Poetry Festival where we talked about um, switching the order of the poems. And so sometimes like where you thought you were going to begin ends up becoming, you know, either cut out entirely because you found the heart as you wrote or it gets shifted around. So where you end becomes the beginning. And so I've been trying to do that, but I don't, I don't know, think that there's a, I think it's the hardest part of writing poetry is figuring out like, <laughs> what's that last one? When do I want to put the poem down? When is it really done? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, Nicole Brown is a great, I, I imagine she feels like one of the most workmanlike poets. Like I think she probably doing a class with her on that topic would be really interesting. Um, yeah, let's see. So, um, let's see. So, oh, I think Dick Westermer says muted and I think he meant the ending should, should be muted. Um, I was scared for a second that I was muted. So I was looking around. <laughs> That's one of those words. Never use the word muted or, or mute on, um, on the stream. Cause I will, I will panic. Um, let me make sure. Okay. Yeah. I'm not muted any of you. Okay. Um, let's see. So, um, I don't know. Let's see. We have maybe time for maybe probably just um, a little more more chatting and maybe one last poem. Um, so if anybody has any more questions to to pass along, let me know. Um, but I was wondering um, about just because nobody mentioned has mentioned rescue animals in a while, and I think that's such a great thing. Um, so what do you think is it that that draws you to rescue animals, and what's your experience like with that? I, I well now I will talk forever. Um, <laughs> I, I love my animals. I've loved animals uh, probably as long as I've loved poetry. And uh, we always had, I, and I, this is a poem I want to write about. We always had animals growing up, um, but my parents were military and we moved a lot. And there were a lot of times we just left the animals behind. In fact, one time we sold a house and left the dog with the people who bought the house. <laughs> so um, I just always, lo- and I decided that when I had animals, I was just going to I was going to have as many animals as I could afford and house. And um, I think five is it. I think uh, I've got three elderly cats now. And and when they were kittens, um, that was wonderful. And now they're all 13 (laughs) facing health problems. So um, that's gotten kind of expensive. Um, But I, I just, I think they're, they're just beautiful. The connection between humans and animals is just so gorgeous and um, inexplicable. And um, I hadn't had a dog since I was, I don't know, 17. Um, cats are easier when you're moving around a lot and in college, you can have cats. And when I got my former dog, Nina, I just, I just remember thinking, I forgot what this relationship feels like. It's just like the silences between you and animals that speak volumes. And, um, I don't know, but just the unconditional love that, that you, you know, they don't care about your past <laughs> they don't care about your, they can see you making mistakes and they're not gonna, you know, and, and I just, and the, the fact that there's so many of them out there, um, I really get heartbroken. I would take all of them if I could, um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a big problem here. We have, um, you know, we're up in the mountains and then there's the desert below us and, um, you know, people dump their animals. They, I don't know if they think that like th- there's maybe, you know, it's the forest, so they'll f- find for themselves or something, but there's, um, you know, packs of wild dogs that are all just um, dumped in their signs, you know, and, and people every once in a while will, will catch someone doing it and get the license plate and try to chase them down and i mean and then the you know and and save the dog but it's something that happens all the time and um it's just heartbreaking because you know we have such a 
um, I don't know, it's such a close relationship to, to pets. And it's just so sad to have, just think of their whole world being turned away or something. I don't know. So I, I just, I, I saw that in the bio and just wanted to talk about it a little bit. Um, mm. So so before we read the last poem, I know, I think you, you've mentioned that you're working on a, a new manuscript, a full-length book. Um, do you want to explain a little bit about what uh, that's about? Yeah. Um, so it's tentatively titled How to Be a Redhead. Um uh, so I'm one of, you probably can't tell too much, um, but I, my hair used to be darker red and we get white as we get older. Um, I've come from six redheads, both my parents, all three of my siblings are redheads. My mother-in-law is a redhead. Um, uh, my grandfather was a red, like there's so many of us. And I read somewhere uh, that when you're a redhead, that that's like a central part of your identity, unlike being a brunette or a blonde. And it's, it's true. Um, and you look for each other when you're out, you know, oh, there's another redhead. Um, we're only 2% of the population. And so I'm just, fa- I became fascinated by 19th century, like pre-Raphaelite poets uh, um, who were also doing paintings, uh, how many of them used redheads for bad women. So, you know, I'm interested mm-hmm. in bad women. So, so many redheaded Eves and Lilis and Delilahs and um, Mary Magdalene's. And I decided I wanted to do a, po- a whole poetry book about redheads on one level or another that will be both about growing up as a redhead, um, but also about famous redheads and images of redheads and myths about redheads, um, which are really fascinating once you start reading them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do, do you have any like idea of, of why those that that sort of narrative came to be? It's it's always strange. Like we have the blondes thing too that was popular in like the sixties or fifties or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But but why do you think um, there's that tradition of redheads like meaning something? Um, well, like do, do you, what do you think the source is of that and, and meaning uh, meaning what it does? Well, because they're rare, right? Mm-hmm. So if only two percent of the world's population is a redhead. Then there's going to be myths that are associated with them. So in the medieval period, um, Marion Roach, I have her book, The Roots of Desire, up here. She goes through the whole history of of looking at redheads. Um, they burned redheads at the stake as witches. They thought that if you had red hair, it was because your mom had sex when she was on her period. Um, uh, they and there's also interesting things like we have a high, we have a, a higher pain tolerance or, or we need more anesthesia. Uh, so dentists know that give you a lot of anesthesia when you come in, if you're a redhead. Um, so there's just really interesting. We are more prone to Parkinson's, um, it's just weird things. But I think ultimately it's like the fact that you were this minority population. Um, and of course, red's the color of the devil. I guess that would do it. Yeah. Um, well, uh, we're about out of time. Let's do one last poem to close up the, the episode. Okay. I'm going to read Father's Song, uh, and that is on page 24. And this uh, begins with an epigraph from an article, What Happens Inside a Cocoon. So I'm going to read that first. There is one particular sort of tissue that remains, and a number of places in the insect's body are collections of special formative cells which have stayed hidden or protected during this partial death. Each of these groups of cells is called an imaginal bud. Imagine one version is simply refrain. How he missed open house and plays, birthdays and prom, but never the chance to point out her flat chest, her crooked teeth, all she couldn't get right. Song she can't brace herself against. Going about her day and suddenly the snaking contours of its chorus uncoiling, rising up, swelling into bombast like that time in the kitchen he was throwing cans and words that dented walls and floors 
and other things. There are other versions, like the one where her dog dies and he holds her face to his chest, or the time her fever spikes and he lays his palm on her cheek, or when he is tickling her on the living room floor and she's giggling, Daddy, Daddy, stop, and hoping he never does. There's the version where she is impervious, where skipping stones don't sink, and the version where she forgives him because every girl needs a dad, and anyway, every song's an echo. She reminds herself he had no father, just some guy named Red who stole him one summer, made him his sidekick speeding through states until the leaves turned and he dropped her father on her grandmother's step like returned mail. The version she hums to herself when she's rocking her babies is this. After her divorce, he sends her a fender, a cheap flea market find. Around its neck, he has bound a familiar gold-flecked strap, and she remembers being seven, awake past bedtime, drawn like a moth to the light of his bedroom, pressing her body against the sliver of his door. He was sitting on the bed, cradling a guitar, around its neck that same strap, in this version, his voice is soft. His fingers gently pluck the strings. Imagine he is writing a love song. Memorize every word. Yeah, another one of those great endings, too. It's Father's Song um, from Imago Day. Elizabeth, thanks so much for being a guest. It was just great to get to talk to you and like see you in person. And um, you know, after exploring this book so much and, and, and working with you, um, it's great to see you. And, and thanks for being a guest. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much. It was really great to be here. Yeah, my pleasure. Have a good day. You too. Okay, and so that was uh, um, Elizabeth Johnston Ambrose once again. And the chapbook that we were focusing on here is Imago Day. I'll put it on the screen one last time. Um, uh, and that's if you subscribe to Rattle, you get a free copy of it. So you have to subscribe. You, it doesn't come with the issue itself. It comes with a subscription. We send two things combined together. And that way we can send more books uh, without without um, spending any more on postage, actually. So it's a, it's a nice uh, little little system we got set up here. So pick that up. And then Wild Things as well from uh, Main Street Rag Press. You can find more of Elizabeth's work um, at her website, which is um, Elizabeth Johnston Ambrose, just like um, it would be spelled Elizabeth Johnston with a T, Ambrose, um, spelled just like it is in the book. So uh, check that out and, um, and all the great things that are coming up um, in Elizabeth's work. Um, now we're going to go to a quick break. Uh, we're going to do open lines, and um, I'm going to give you the uh, link if I can find it. You can join us on the Zoom. I just have to find the link. Copy. Okay, so I'm going to paste the link to join us on Zoom over um, into YouTube and pin it to the top. Now only come over here on Skype if you plan to share a poem. If you don't have a poem you want to share, uh, then just keep watching it where you are because the broadcast continues. But we just open up the Zoom for everybody to join who wants to share a poem. And that way we can all participate. Um, the prompt for this week was to write a poem about food or drink. So that was a prompt. You can share prompt poems. You can share poems um, about the news. You can share poems about um, anything you want, recent publications. Um, if you would, though, email me the poem's text or a link if it was published somewhere um, so we can show the poem on screen as you read email that to openmic 
at rattle.com. Up on the screen right now, open mic at rattle.com, open mic at rattle.com. Then find the Zoom link and come on in and join us to share a poem if you would like. But remember, if you don't want to share a poem, just stay where you are. And uh, once you do share a poem, you can leave and go back to the, the main stream where you uh, get to see the poem along with it. So, so go ahead and do that. And put some music, get everything set up, and I will be right back. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. As I mentioned, if you'd like to share a poem, uh, come join us on Zoom. We have uh, seven people lined up so far. You can watch a little bit and join Zoom later if you want to. And also, if you can't make it or don't want to be on screen or don't want to um, share, you know, read yourself, you can just email me poems. And if we have time toward the end, I read some poems as well. Um, just email those to openmic, openmic at rattle.com. Now, um, the prompt, so Megan didn't have a prompt poem this week. The prompt was to write about food or drink. I think Megan's kind of taking a break. I think she might be a little burned out with uh, writing a poem every week. Um, but maybe not. But that's a challenge to make sure she gets one next week. Um, but I have two because I didn't finish my poem from last week um, quite in time. There was like one line I couldn't get to fix, right? Um, so I'll share that first. It's, they're both short. The, the first, uh, the last week's prompt was to write a... Um, a uh, write about something you were wrong about. And so one of the things I was wrong about lately, I really did not think that Putin would invade Russia. I just thought that the economic consequences would be too dire and the war would be too tough and there was no way he could hold Ukraine anyway. And so, um, so I just, I, you know, I was like, oh God, he's not going to, that's just, uh, you know, fear mongering and posturing and trying to get some, you know, some stuff out of it. And I was wrong. So um, this is a triolet about that. Okay, so here's the triolet about the war. I was wrong about the latest war. That was the last mistake I made. I thought we wouldn't have them anymore. I was wrong. About the latest war, each consequence had been accounted for. But here, among the grasses, is a blade I was wrong about. The latest war that was the last mistake I made. So that is, uh, that is the triolet about the war. And then the prompt for this week was to write about food or drink. And so I wrote about this. This is a kind of um, a hyben. And um, hyben are easy, and I didn't have that much time, honestly. Uh, but um, this is a Brussels sprouts. And one of the things that, that I always, I think is very important, is to, is to teach kids to have a healthy relationship with food. And so that's one of the things we are careful about as parents. Because um, I did not. Like, I was told to eat everything. And to this day, I... Um, you know, I, I I eat too much just because I don't want to throw anything away. I feel so intense guilt about like leaving something for the garbage. And this is a, a poem about that. Brussels sprouts. They covered the expanse of my ceramic plate like a Belgian soccer team on a pitch. I pushed them around like a general planning troop movements. Slimy the next morning, they were boogers bald from a giant's filthy nostrils. By lunch, cooled and reheated a second time, they decayed into steaming mounds of ambiguous mush. Without taste or scent or texture, it felt like eating glue. Doing dishes, I pick at my daughter's plate without thinking. That was my Brussels sprouts haiku, or uh, hyben, I mean, your poem about food or drink. And now let's see uh, what you all have. Who would like to go first? I think we've done Aubrey toward the end lately, so let's do Aubrey... um, Earlier this time, asked Aubrey to unmute. Hey, Audrey, how you doing? 
sequestered in my oh, hey, home. I'm going to cut you off because I had I didn't have the uh, yep. the audio oh, off yet. So why don't, you, why don't you why uh, don't you say that again, Audrey? Let's just introduce the poem for a second so everybody can know what it's about, and then uh, and then read okay. it. Okay, reintroduce the poem. Yeah. I said that when the pandemic began, my mood was quite dark. I was so fearful that I wrote light verse. And here is something about food um, that I'd like to share with you. My grandmother's, my grandma's elixir for everything. Coronavirus from across the sea has taken from us all frivolity. Sequestered in my home for endless days, I try to read, but I'm encased in a haze. I'm so grateful I can still breathe and taste. It seems that life before was lived in haste. I chopped the onion, carrots, and the dill, hoping the chicken soup will ward off any ill. Very good. Yeah, thanks so much for that. My grandma's elixir for everything. And there was a lot of stuff I think we learned during the lockdowns, right? That we don't yeah. don't need to do things that we thought we <laughs> we'd like to do. Um Let's, uh, and then you have another one here too. Um, the I do. Yeah, IBEW um, Local 3. What's this about? Okay, so my father was an electrician in the naval shipyard. And uh, this one's dedicated to him. A triolet, triolet, however we pronounce it. IBEW Local 3, journeyman. My father wired skeletons in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Then the twin towers before the rubble and ash. Each night he returned on the Brighton line. My father wired skeletons in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, became a link in a human chain seeking light, unburnt air. When the USS Constellation blazed, killing 50 workers, even monuments fall. My father wired skeletons, but in the end, what isn't rubble or ash? Thank oh, very you. Good. Yeah, thanks for sharing those two short poems, Audrey. Those are great. Thank you. Okay, and now let's go to, um, let's go to a first time uh, a joiner. This is uh, Jennifer Elise Wang. Hi. Hey, Jennifer. How you doing? Uh, I'm good. I'm actually visiting my mom. So coincidentally, this poem is a little bit about my mom. Oh, excellent. <laughs> and, and where are you calling from? Or, or where, are you, where are you usually anyway? Um, I'm usually in Dallas, Texas. Uh -huh. And yeah, my parents live also in the Metroplex, just on the other side. <laughs> gotcha. And, and that's a huge metro. I've never been there, but I hear it's like the most, the widest expanse of yeah. <laughs> anything. Yeah. Um, so this is uh, Stinky Tofu. Yes. Perfect. And okay. so, oh, yeah, for the prompt. Okay, go ahead whenever you're ready. Go ahead. Yeah, so the prompt inspired me to write this, and it's a little bit of a work in progress, but yeah, I thought I'd share. So, stinky tofu. I remember the first time my mother made stinky tofu. The smell made me want to run away and dye my hair blonde and change my name to something that brought sandwiches in a brown bag for lunch and cook cucumber and not cook cucumbers and put tofu or put tomatoes and eggs. I was afraid the tofu would make me repugnant too. You are what you eat, right? My mother said I had to try some or be sent to my room alone with no dinner at all. So I held my breath to avoid the smell of fermentation and the burn in my nostrils from the peppers. I couldn't tell if the salty taste was the sauce or my tears. 
Afterwards, I shoveled a bunch of rice into my mouth, hoping that I'd grow to be more warm and soft and white. Instead, I was the same yellow-brown hue as the tofu, which one day became exotic and desirable, although I don't know if the men actually wanted to eat it or just desired to eat it in front of me. I was still holding my breath, this time to avoid the strong cologne filling my nostrils when they stood too close. I welcomed the burn of whiskey shots and shoveled more rice into my mouth so I wouldn't confess I didn't like the tofu. I didn't like being there. I didn't like him. With a smile and a fortune cookie, I went home alone, but didn't cry about that anymore because as I gained wrinkles like the tofu when it was cooked, my skin also became tough. Excellent. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. That was Stinky Tofu, Jennifer Elise Wang. And um, yeah, it's true. There's so much, you know, food, you know, means so much and has so much more social things going on than uh, just the food itself. So thanks for sharing that insight. Thank you. Yep, take care. Okay, so now let us go to, oh, you know, Jaco Benoit is here. Let's uh, get Jaco on. He is this Tuesday poet. Hey, Jaco, are you there? Yep, I'm here. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. So um, so you have a poem um, that's going to be the Tuesday poem. Um, it's the Action Star Unscripted, and people might have an idea what that's about just from the title. Maybe not. So do you want to explain uh, what the poem is about? Uh, well, it's about the news that uh, Bruce Willis is retiring from acting because of aphasia. He's losing the ability to understand language, to communicate. Uh, and yeah, I kind of uh, felt moved by that because, you know, as a poet, you you think of the one of the worst things that could happen to you. And that's right up there. Uh, you know, losing the ability with, with language. And yeah, so that meant a lot to me and the fact that I've been watching him since Moonlighting. So yeah, it's such a sad, you know, a, a tragic thing. It's, but he's only, he's only 67 too. Um, yeah. Do you know, I haven't read much um, about aphasia. I don't know much about it. Um, do you happen to know, like, like, what is the experience like? Because we think so much in words. Um, is there any idea of like what, um, you know, having losing that ability to communicate in that way, what does that do to your thought process and how how you can exist? Do you know? Yeah, yeah, and I I, I don't know a lot about it. Just the little bit that I did read um, before this and before I wrote the poem as well. I I think from what I've read, there's not much good, <laughs> you know, in terms of what comes out of it. Um, I think. The, there's a high level of frustration. Mm-hmm. Uh, just imagine, you know, those moments when you forget a word that you've known forever and you're just, it's at the tip. Well, imagine that's all the time and constant. And, you know, so magnify that feeling. And I think you get some sense of it, but I can't say I know much about the science of it mm-hmm. or, you know, the experience of it. I haven't known anybody who's gone through it. Yeah. And because and, and, the other thing about the story is that, that, of course, Bruce Willis was doing all these movies. He was doing like eight a year for the last several years. People kind of like his handlers kind of propped him up and he had an earpiece that they would just he just repeat the lines. And then they have this whole sort of movie mill where um, he would be on the cover for like a very short role to make it seem like it was a Bruce Willis movie just to get people to watch it. And then um, right. so so his sort of image and brand was being exploited as he was kind of propped up. And, I, and at first I thought, wow, that's awful. But then I thought, well, I'm really assuming that it would be awful for him. Maybe it's just what he wants to do, you know? So who am I to say that it's awful, you know? So that's why I was kind of wondering about, about how the aphasia goes. Um, yeah. We don't know 
you know, to what extent he was pushing this, his management team was pushing this. Maybe they both were. Maybe it was, hey, you know, let's get as much money put away as we can while we can. Mm -hmm. And in which case, I get it. You know, uh, I understand that. But yeah, it, it did lead to, you know, some <clears throat> a lot of movies that uh, people aren't going to watch twice if yeah. they even watch them once. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't you go ahead and read this? This is The Action Star Unscripted. Okay. okay. Uh, the Action Star Unscripted for Bruce Willis. You might think all that is left for the action star with aphasia is the syntax of car crashes punctuated by explosions. In his movies, he crossed cities, countries, space, and time. But the gaps between letters are now terrifyingly vast. People mistake his stoic silences for anxious pauses. But he can read his family by how they move and how by, by how far away and close they are. He can read the front pages of newspapers, which are mostly ads with pictures. He can turn down the volume of the world and translate eyebrows into their pleas and diatribes, minus the lies words sell themselves into just to be heard. He can apprehend a skyline filled with aspirational virile buildings corseted with walls. He is not a mirror fogger. He knows philosophers' language has been shaped by their lovers. Where he had quips, his eyes and hands reach out. He spends a little more time watching murmurations of starlings, those seemingly unscripted split-second shapes he is sure are telling him something. Yeah, it's a beautiful poem that was... uh... Uh, the action star unscripted and just a great sort of empathizing and trying to imagine what it would be like to be in, in that position. Um, I know, happen to notice that you wrote a whole bunch of poems this week. I think there are three or think really good poems. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, what was it about this week that did you have, we're on vacation or something or how did, how did that uh, three oh, poems no. come out this week? You know, uh, there are times when I write stuff that I don't send it in, <laughs> but you know, th- this week it just seemed like there were stories in the news that were kind of hitting me somehow. And, you know, you had the Will Smith slap. Uh, my favorite was at the beginning of the week when I read about a, you know, uh, a tank um, uh, soldier in the Russian army who sold his tank uh, to the Ukrainians and surrendered for 10,000 bucks. I can't write that stuff. Like if I were doing a script. So it was just one of those weeks, you know, I, I tend to turn towards public stuff a lot and this week it just kind of i i seem to hit poetic pay dirt you know yeah well i'm, I'm glad you did thanks so much uh, for for writing those poems and for sharing them and then yeah. joining us today jacko oh you're welcome and thank you yeah thanks a lot okay yeah so that was jacko benoit with the action star unscripted and uh let's go to um let's go to nivedita hey nivedita how you doing Hey, Tim. I'm doing great. Thank you. How about you? I'm doing good. It's great to see you. So what do you have for us this week? Um, I have a small, fun prompt poem because like, I think like Audrey said, uh, at the start of the pandemic, all of us just wanted something to take our mind of how serious things were. And I must say, I 
I've generally not written anything about food or drink, and this prompt really prompted me to to yeah, write. Yeah, me neither. I, I realize it's not something that I write about very often. Exactly, um, it's not something often. I mean, I've never probably in all the poems I've written, probably one had something to do with food about it, but it wasn't centered about food or drink. So, great prompt, by the way. Yeah. Uh, okay, go ahead. I have it up. Okay, great. Thank you. Afternoon tea. I attended a tea party today on a little tea table overlooking the calm bay. And although there were only three guests, you see, it was the best attended party of three. After some tiny sandwiches and a petit four, spending the evening doing chores does not seem such a bore. Oh, in case you're wondering who these special guests were, let me tell you before your mind goes over. Today's guests were so great that such company even money couldn't buy. I must say, I thoroughly enjoyed afternoon tea with me, myself, and I. Oh, excellent. I love that ending. I didn't see that coming. Uh, thanks, <laughs> Nivi. Always a pleasure. Um, Thank you, Tim. Yeah, it's lovely talking to you, too. Have yep, a great have, Sunday. Yep. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Bye. There's Nivi DeKarthik with uh, Afternoon Tea. Uh, let's go to um, Joe Nolan. We missed Joe a little while, uh, a couple episodes ago, when we didn't have room. Hey, Joe. How you doing? Good. Can you hear me? I can. Good. I can't see okay. you, though. If you want to come on video. Um, oh, let me see. Is that it, working? Let's see. If not, it's uh, because I didn't get my video set up before I signed in or something. Yeah, no problem. It, it's fine Hold just on. to have your voice. Let me uh, see. Uh, start video. Hold on. Okay. Okay. I think you're so coming. There okay, you are. Yeah. You. Yeah. All hey, right. Joe. How, how you doing? Good, good. Uh, so what do you so, have that you'd like to share? Yeah, just a little poem here, you know, de dealing with issues of ambivalence between poets and their poetry fans. Interesting. To a favorite poet, I disagree with your line breaks, your timing and your rhymes. I disagree with your feelings. I rage against our times. When light is bent, awkward by gravity, since space by objects is curved. I disagree with all you write and with every word, but I recognize your brilliance, your genius, though absurd. And when I meet some newfound friends, I ask if they've heard of you. Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that, Joseph. And uh, it reminds me of uh, um, uh, Brendan Constantine. I don't know if it was his podcast he was on here in the Rattlecast or, or his interview in the actual issue, but he was talking about how there were certain poets that he just couldn't, kind of couldn't stand. Like they bugged him. And um, they re then he realized that because they bugged him, they were compelling him to write more poems um, about why they bugged him and do things differently, and that they were actually more valuable than the people who he loved for, for writing anyway. So um, very cool. Well, thanks for sharing that, Joseph. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Yep. Take care. There's uh, Joseph Nolan with uh, To a Favorite Poet. And uh, let's go to um, let's go to T.R. Paulson next. Hey, T.R., how you doing? Hi, how are you? I'm good. Um, let's see. I, I have a new favorite poet today. <laughs> yeah? Elizabeth is, I she just blew me away. Um, she's doing so much of what I'm trying to do, and 
some of my religious poetry and yeah wow just wow oh that's very cool yeah because your styles are different i mean you know you are such a formalist that uh it's interesting to see hear that yeah i mean there's not a lot of my religious poems that are published i mean i almost very few of them but that inspired me to pull up one that is published that i suppose you probably rejected at some form in some time <laughs> but um it was picked up by hawk and whipperwill which is a smaller journal and um it's um i'm calling it blank verse so it's not as formal as some of my poems mm-hmm. um I don't, I don't. Do you have a way of putting it on the screen, or is, are we doing that anymore? Um, I don't. It'll be on the screen for people at home, but uh, but for you, you have to read your own copy. Okay, I just I haven't done the Zoom thing. I love the Zoom thing. I think it works. Yeah, it so makes much it, it makes it easier. Seamless. Yeah, yeah. But I still turn it. I use it the same way as we use Skype because it, then I can layer your your image over it and move in and out of different screens. So, um, but so yeah. So read your own copy, but I'll, they'll have it up so people can read along. Okay, but you got the email. I did. It's Kane did not kill first, right? Yeah. Okay. Cain did not kill first. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins. Genesis 3.21. Eden must have felt hot to the creature lured by God from her mate, his ribs aching still. She romped on black paws down paths lined with stones and snags to the naked man for her name. She must have brushed his ribs when she leaped into his lap. He, surprised to touch her golden brown fur, so smooth, even when pushed against the grain. Sable, he breathed and allowed his name and allowed his hands to linger on her silky sides before letting her go. Later, the man bought the woman fig leaves to sew, his chin and hers stained with nectar, knowing nothing of flesh except living. Did the sable even survive the trip home, or did her creator follow her, atoning blade in hand, to corner her in stones and take her skin? Oh, that was excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that, Tiara. And I love the blank verse. You can hear that that rhythm there. Um, always great stuff. Uh, where was that published again? Hawk and Whipperwill. Hawk and Whipperwill. Uh, which, I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, they, they have a website, and I think they're sort of in limbo right now because they were supposed to come up with a print version which hasn't materialized yet um yeah print makes everything tough it's very expensive yeah yeah, so i mean you can find it by google if you find my if you google my name and the name of the poem i think it will pop up Mm -hmm. um i'm not sure i haven't googled in a while that's why i sent you it was sort of um spur of the moment even hopping on here this morning well very cool Um, but i was so inspired by elizabeth that i just had to join in (laughs) very cool i'm so glad you did thanks tr as always yeah Okay, now let's go to um, let's go to um, Potter King Badger O'Donohue. Hello, Tim. Hey, how you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm this is this one of the best? They're they're all good. I mean, everyone is the best one yet. <laughs> yeah, everyone is the best one yet. Yeah, the best day you're ever going to have is tomorrow, Ex- isn't it? Exactly, exactly. Uh, Elizabeth was great, and. Um, no, she. I can't. I have. I suppose because I'm abroad, the uh, rapper mags take longer to arrive. So I haven't got her book yet. Oh, really? Yeah, I it should be any day now. It takes about a month to get through. Yeah, it's grand, yeah. but I can't wait to get it. So thanks very much. And um, it was funny that everybody's said about our great endings because I think in poetry, 
you need to get a really good first line and you need to nail the ending. But also in books, whether it be your own collection or a magazine, the first poem has to be, you know, grabby by the <laughs> Yeah, and for the, sure. The last poem has to punch you up the throat or something. Um, and I'm cheating because this poem now um, is 10 years old, but I think it's the one time uh, self-praise is no praise, but it's the only praise I'm going to get. Um, I think it's the first time I got a really good be- beginning and nailed the end. Anyway, it's called Jewel. And uh, Jewel comes, it's a it's a tribute to Dublin, but also to my grandfather who lived in Dublin uh, for a lot of his life. He was an alcoholic like me. Um, but... Uh, Jewel and Dal in Dublin. I don't know where the phrase originated from. The first time I heard it was Ronnie Drew of the Dubliners singing about me, Jewel and Dal in Dublin. I thought Jewel is such a a lovely word to describe a city. And uh, so it's called Jewel. Along Cable Street, I stumble into Slattery's and stagger out again to be sure I have my wits. What the hell have they done? Is nothing sacred? Is anything safe from their blandios renaissance? A curse on them, whoever they are. I barrel onto the keys, singing or talking to myself, corpulent with drink and struggling to reinflate between bursts of song. Filled with stupid elation and fueled on pints of stout, I gaze wide-eyed and blowing at the newfound beauty of herself, Anna Liffey. Spanned by an arch, the whitest shade of pale, her waters are expressive, fecund and inviting. With undulating warm open arms of green, she calls to me in clamshells of desire. Wanting to be smothered within and bursting for a leaf, I express myself, let fly the floodgates, a stream of pea to the pea green below. Relief and satisfaction in equal measure, they'll never take the piss out of Dublin. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, Peter. Another excellent ending that I did not see coming. It made me smile. Thanks for sharing that. (laughs) (laughs) Take care. And um, let's go next to, um, let's go to Shanhu Lee. Hey, Shanhu, how are you doing today? Doing very well, thank you. Um, I don't know if you want to come in on video, but you you don't have it on. I don't have a video. Is that okay with yeah, you? Yeah, that's totally fine. So what what would you like to share? Um, it is about my dog. My rescue dog. Oh, excellent. Perfect. Yeah, perfect for what we were talking about at the end there. Yeah. Yes, I thought so. Um, what kind of dog? Well, I don't know. I don't want to spoil the poem. What what kind of dog do you have, though? Uh, it is a... It has like uh, 17 different breeds. Excellent. Black dog, black and white dog. I have a photo. Very cool. Well, uh, I don't think we can, we can't see it because of the video, but, uh, but let's hear the poem. Springtime for Aspen. I sent you the. Oh, you did? Yeah. Um, the, oh, the photo's at the end. Oh, there's the photo. Okay, here. So we can see the photo. This is Aspen right here. What an adorable dog. That is wonderful. That's Aspen right there. I love him already. (laughs) Okay. Okay, so let's Uh, hear the poem. Yes. Springtime for Aspen. Aspen is my favorite opera singer, barking at the postman every day, chasing 
after three months, like a rocket. Digging my garden like a mining diamonds, excessively and tirelessly. Aspen is my best friend, faithful and honorable, cheerful and grateful, curious and patient, funny and hilarious, like Chaplin, intelligent and insightful. Aspen is a genius. What a joy to live with Aspen. Aspen is a kick-ass dog. Aspen has the best life. A new leash on life. A new light in my life. What a miracle that Aspen decided to live with me. Napping all day, dreaming of long walks. Obedient, but thinking out of the box. Wild and precious life. Aspen reminds me of this quote on a summer day. Restless, relentless, and resilient. Aspen is my sweet baby. Aspen is the definition of love. Shortful and wise, like grandma. Aspen has unique markings. She looks like a cow. Aspen is more virtuous than people. If all humans behave like Aspen, we'll have no war. No homophobia, no xenophobia, no Facebook. Year after year, we will have only a peaceful and a justful life, enjoying the little things like Aspen. Oh, that was great. And then once again, here's a picture of Aspen, uh, who we just love. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. And it was an abecedarian poem, too, which I didn't notice until about halfway through. Um, yeah, thanks for sharing that, Chanhu. Thank you. Okay, let's go next to uh, Guy Chambers. Hey, Guy. How are you doing today? Hi, Tim. There you go. Now that everything froze up there for a bit. I'm in trouble with my Wi-Fi all day today so far. <laughs> well, friend, while you're here now, so so what do you have that you'd like to share? Okay, this first one here, like I got a couple here. I hope you have time to read both. But uh, this first one here, uh, it's kind of a, it happened part of my childhood. And like I did one time, I was writing a bunch of poetry, but there were some poems I wanted to write about my, you know, my early years and put it out in writing. So this one's called Cookie Jar. Cookie Jar. In the porch, next door, on the shelf, a jar full of cookies, a jar of trust, a jar of goodwill, waiting on the other side of the fence. Small eyes lurk, foretaste gratifying. Once a day, small footsteps cross the yard to the porch, door always unlocked. Open the door, quietly step in, reach for the jar, reach in, pull out just one, only one cookie of jar of many. Small eyes fulfill, push the jar back, back on the shelf, close the door behind him, float, back across the yard on cloud nine. Dream the rest of the day away for the next day cookie. Learning trust, being trusted, giving back the trust, rewarded, uh, rewarded with another cookie the next day. Still today lives in those eyes. That's a, <laughs> that's a, that's there. Had a, like, 
she told her, he said, you only, I give you a cookie a day, but you only can go in and get one, one and only, and that's it. And <laughs> every day I'll be there for you. So it was something I just learned trust, you know, back in those days. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, great story. Thanks for sharing that guy. And then you have another short one too, Black Coffee yeah, this, Funeral. Yeah, Black Coffee Funeral. It's called this. I'll talk a little bit more at the end here. Old men in a favorite coffee shop, sitting on stools, a cup of black coffee on hand, sipping a four-time, a recollection, a departed memory, memory, an empty stool, an empty cup. Despairing, another black coffee, knowing the, coffee, the cup will soon run out, only just to sip away. Yeah, I feel you right here. I got my coffee. and uh... Yeah, because you get a lot of people like, you see, my dad used to do that, uh, retired, and they just meet up with their old friends and have a coffee talking, and one day... Oh, there's somebody missing here. You know, there's an empty stool on that. Then you start realizing, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, life is so short away from now from there. So for sure. So yeah. that's why we're not. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks okay, for sharing then. that guy. Yeah. Thank Always you. A pleasure. Bye. 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 This guy Chambers with a black coffee funeral and cookie jar. Let's go to uh, Mike Bales. Hello. How's it going? Good. How you doing, Mike? Pretty good. I went to a really nice book fair. It was the best book fair for me an hour away at a place called bishop hill which is historic it's actually a swedish settlement before they moved out west mm-hmm. oh do you so, want to turn your camera on mike um there yeah i'll be glad to okay there we go there you go yeah good to see you i'm live um this came from a dream it's uh it's insubmittable Okay, yeah, I'm pulling up right now. I didn't know what article, news article to really access. So I just, I'm interested in how wars, how our human games are kind of imitate wars. Mm-hmm. You know, like I could be watching about Ukraine or whatever and watch, ba- and there's a basketball screen, basketball on a screen in the bar, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. It is. So this came from a dream. It was a kind of a strange Parcheesi game, if you ever remember Parcheesi. Those little round bases of the little stems, and you move them around. And Yeah, I know that game. I never learned how to play. I um, um, <laughs> I tried I, looking at the rules, and I don't know, it's, it, it's, it was confusing to me, and so I never learned. <laughs> so this is kind of weird, surreal, a Parcheesi game that played in my mind over time and space, and it's probably a little bit dark or cloudy, or smoky when I was dreaming and I woke up and said, this is a war poem. So I jotted notes the next day, a word processed it. It's called Across across the Squares. You move one piece yourself as the woman of the house. You move two pieces if there's a child. You fear bullets and bombs, but fate is left to a roll of the dice. You You try to keep both pieces on one square, but if your position's but your positions will shift with every hill and turn. You fear your opponents also rolling the dice as they follow. The starting point hides behind smoke like clouds as the life you know falls. You hope for big numbers. You hope for doubles to advance to a host country. If it's a small number, you cry. But as you bear the weight of memories, you're barely able to stay ahead of the others. If they capture you, they'll mock your language and take your soul, or they'll laugh as they kill you, as it's just a game. 
You dare not look back for the for the third piece, an able-bodied man and fi- father who's left behind to fight. You stick to well-worn paths and follow the squares to another place you can call home. But the game's never won until all three pieces cross the border and smoke is cleared from the sky. Yeah, excellent. Thanks for sharing that, Mike. Good poem. Uh, okay, was, thanks. Uh, yeah, cross the squares. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> okay, and then uh, last but not least, we have uh, Dick Westheimer here. Hey, Dick, how you doing? I'm doing great. It's uh, I, I love love the interview today. Was, daring poets are. I, I hesitate to say a joy because the you know the poems dug deep, but it's mm-hmm. it's really inspiring to listen to poets who really do let let themselves get into trouble and then stay there. For sure, yeah, she definitely does in this book. It's just what makes it you know every time you read it, it there's something more to find and see because of that aspect of it. Yeah, yeah, that's it's something. Um, and, uh, sorry if I, uh, um, messed up your Facebook with a snarling dog last week. I just figured when you asked for cats that you were playing an April Fool's joke. Yeah. Well, Megan likes to do that. So, and I forgot it was April Fool's Day. I was actually like the utter fool because I didn't uh, even realize that I was like, what is, you know, weird things are happening today. Oh, uh, that's uh, why. Yeah. I think that speaks well of you because the basis of April Fool's jokes is cruelty. <laughs> Yeah, well, so. well, Megan loves them, so I guess she's a cruel person. Yeah, <laughs> you know, well, my, usually my... what we do is we, um, you know, get the kids involved and get some kind of, um, you know, like bug thing or some kind of like mouse thing or some kind of gross thing, <laughs> but uh, we totally forgot. So, <laughs> oh goodness. Well, uh, anyway, I did I did appreciate that. And one of the things I was thinking as she was reading, I was just so almost brought to tears by. Uh, her mother wanting more and more of those poems. Yeah. Um, and I was reminded, you know, the, the the poem of mine that you published about my father, I hadn't ever shared with my sisters until you accepted it. And I went, uh-oh, there's a lot in there that's not exactly true factual. Mm-hmm. So I sent it to my sisters and we had like this hour-long conversation, which they started talking about things we didn't know about each other's relationship with my dad. And it was, it was like just this little sonnet sized poem was one of the best things that happened to our, our, my relationship with my sisters. Yeah. That's the thing about families. There's just so many things that we want to talk about and should talk about, but then we don't know how to start talking about. And, and so poems can be that vehicle. Yeah. It's a, it's a gift. Uh, do I have time for uh, two? Yeah. We're in no rush. And as, as both the poets respond poems. Yeah, I have two poets, poets yeah. respond poems. Mm-hmm. Sorry to lard, lard up your 500. <laughs> That's all right. Poems. I just love, it's down to normal. It's down to like 200 again. Um, okay. So so which one do you want to read first? Um, I, I'll start with the one I wrote first, which was this open letter to poets who have moved on from war. And it. Uh, I'll just introduce it by saying I don't, I rarely start with an idea in a poem. Like I have, I have, um, you know, s- some rhetorical idea that is bouncing around my head, but I just let this one go. Um, So it's called An Open Letter to Poets Who Have Moved On from War. Your pages and verse have gone on to chronicle spring. They note the daffodils that didn't ruin in the hard freeze, the magnolia blossoms that did, the gander defending the goose. The news crews which press the president to make war more interesting. 
the red carpet preening that floods Reddit threads, and what's all the rage? The slapped face, billionaires in space, all while soldiers die and body counts rise. Meanwhile, the creek is out of its banks, the bottom field is submerged, and the rising water threatens to sweep away the geese. So here's your prompt for next week's poem. War never ends. The dead speak in blank verse, the dispossessed scattered like bitter alyssum seed. Yeah, excellent poem. Oh, an open letter to poets who have moved on from war. I was thinking about this, and, um, you know, for, for an optimistic take, and, and I wonder if maybe one of the reasons that the poems do, like there's like a rush of poems and then they kind of die down. And I was wondering if maybe it's because poems work, you know? And so, you know, we're in a search for meaning and we're finding sort of some way to understand things. And then because we read other people's poems that have, and we've, we've worked through them ourselves on our own, we kind of have solved the, the thing inside that's like trying to come out. So maybe it's because the process of poetry works that, uh, that the poems slow down maybe. Now, that was my optimistic. Of course, the uh, the truth is that the news isn't blaring it as much as constantly, and uh, and we move on to other things. Yeah, I mean, I look, I, I confess to being a little obsessed with Twitter, and the thread is just sort of like it thins out. You can see it thinning out as if the num the suffering has declined. Mm-hmm. You know, as if and and part of it is this story. You know, you notice these news crews. Uh, in press conferences, which want more war, right? You know, why aren't you going to bomb them? Why, you know, why no flies? You know, like, and it's, it's, you can kind of feel this press to like make the adrenaline run for the rest of us by pursuing the, the, um, pursuing war. So I read a a book once about um, the media making, uh, you know, having a, a making a serial killer just to make news stories. It was a novel. I can't remember what it yeah. was, but it was. It just. I think of that all the time. Like if they, if they could, they would love to just, you know, hire people to to make awful things happen just so they could report on. It. <laughs> well, the, the the most iconic one was the president's news conference about his new budget, and there was one question about the budget, and the rest was, you know. You know, how, what line has to be crossed before you'll bomb the shit out of them? Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was like this series of very aggressive, like, yeah. can't we make news more interesting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's all subconscious, probably. It's not like anybody thinks that, but everybody benefits from it. And then they, you know, we, we are experts at deceiving ourselves, too. Yeah. Anyway, well, let's hear the other one. The other one is, uh, while my I, wife is away, I considered the pr- properties of space time, which another poem that I love. The the title jumped out at me as I was reading this. <laughs> um, well, the uh, the the story is this discovery of a planet that was formed uh, that we could see because of a gravitational lens. The Hubble could see it. It goes back to about 900 million years after the formation of the universe, basically when stars were first forming. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's one of the, one, one, one of the stars when, uh, what they call cosmic dawn, when the first, when the light was emerging into the universe. So what, what could prompt more metaphor than that? Yeah. So while my wife is away, I consider the properties of space time. Love is a gravitational lens. The evidence, you, so far away, continue to make this bed feel like a nest. The hundred houseplants you left 
for me to tend, breathe atoms into this place left over from the cosmic dawn. It doesn't matter to such a universe why you've gone or when you'll come home, because according to the theory of everything, you never left. You only left if you are merely a body, your skin, the animal fabric of space-time. But you, like Arundel, are primal light, a redshift heat that reaches me, whether by your hand on my thigh or by way of a cosmic deep radiation from some ancient place where the distance between Baltimore and here is both infinite and zero. When the stuff of your softness pressed fleshy against my sinews, your breast at rest in my cupped hand was still scattered among the lonely stars and dust that emerged, had emerged from nothing, back when love was a quantum entanglement, just two bodies that can't be described as independent of one another, even when they are so very far apart, even when one or another ceases to exist. Yeah, another excellent poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Dick. It's a, it was a great week of poems, both in the open lines and um, just in the submissions. There was just a, a great, even though the submission numbers had returned to normal, um, it was one of those weeks where very tough to pick the poems uh, that I could. And that was, a, that was a great one that was standing out for me, too. While my wife is away, I considered the properties of space-time. Um, thanks, as always, and uh, it's always a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Appreciate yep, you. Yep, take care. Bye-bye. And so that is uh, the end of the open lines. Um, let me see who we have. So um, let's see. So Zachary, I think I'm going to save Zachary's um, Zachary, if you're there, um, you got to find the Zoom link. I don't know. Zachary hasn't been on in a while. Zachary Honeycutt, um, and he, I don't think he's been on since we switched to Zoom. So go to the uh, YouTube chat window and find the U- Zoom link if you would like to join us and share poems, Zach. If not, um, I think I'm going to save these in case you want to share them next week or something like that. So there's two free verse poems that Zachary sent. Um, Clayton Clark um, can't be here today, but would like me to read this. Uh, Clayton Clark is a regular viewer, of course. This is uh, The Way I See It. So let me read this uh, Clayton's poem. Well, we'll just leave that up. Um, The Way I See It. Grandmother lies loosely tied to her blue diamond hospital gown guardrails raised, no chance of escape. She perks at the sight of a thin, mustached orderly who brings a thimble of red, quivering jello. She struggles to sit. He helps her rise, propped against pillows. She opens her mouth. He spoons her a little taste. Far above the flyover states, she savors the sweet, Soothing goo and leaves everything behind. Eyes clear, she peers down, passes over geometric brown and green farmland, then her home. In the distance, she hears a sustained note somewhere between B and B minor that delights to the to no end as she soars. Great poem, the way I see it about Jello. Um, excellent poem for the prompt. Thanks for sharing that, Clayton. And let's read Ted's poem. So Attractive yeah, attract Fahey was here last week. If attract, I'm going to save this too in case you want to read it later. Uh, but I know Ted wants us to read this. And he's got a picture. This is, um, this is the food right here. Um, Pampushka, I think. Here, this is, a, this is the, the food right here. Kind of pull-away bread. 
And um, let's see, what is, what is the note? Of all the quotes coming from the war, the one that pointed out, how can I fight you when we look the same, struck with, struck with me the most. It may not be word for word, but it seems to be the definite query th- afterthought. And it's the theme of my food poem this week. Also, it's my first poem on the war. And so here is Pampushka. Uh, this is Ted Bernal Guevara. Once again, here's the poem. Pampushka. Let us share the taste older than us, land, brethren. Yeast comes from our soul. It was there before the dough rose up our warm bodies, upright to the keenest of our taut seams. Savor the sky, for it has kept its sweets lately from falling. It refuses to break, to white cover the fields of red, so acute and outlined now. We're the glow on the buns we've always calibrated. It is flake of saccharin that joins us skin to skin. Anew, it's the snow. Pillow us no more. We cool, then freeze. Peace can't find the heat, for friction is held. From our wood burned together. It is served bitter now. Just yesterday, it was flavored au courant with berries, jam, garlic, and served alongside borscht. Excellent poem, Pampushka. I love that, Ted. Thanks for sharing that, and a pleasure to read. Really enjoyed that one. And I think that's all. We're going to save um, Zachary Honeycuts for later, in case he wants to show up next week. And um, that's it. Now let's do the um, Saiku really quick. And the Saiku this week, what was it? Ah, it was this story. This is from Science Daily. This is plastic bag bans may unintentionally drive other bag sales. And so this is a little study out of the University of Georgia that was just published. And um, they have these, um, here in California, there's a plastic bag ban everywhere. And the problem with it is that you use those bags, and so um, people end up buying more bags, and the bans don't end up actually doing anything. At least that's one of the arguments against it. Personally, I love it. We have these uh, cloth bags. I don't have any within reach. Um, but we have these cloth bags, they're washable, and then you just throw them in the wash after, and they take them to the grocery store again, and they last forever. Uh, eventually, they have a hole in them, but um, but very few have, have had a hole. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, so um, the study looked at the uh, the actual sales of um, plastic bags, other kinds of like small garbage bags and things. And they found that in counties that have these plastic bag bans, they end up selling um, 50 to 75% more um, plastic bags after the bans go into effect, which turns out so that you know, just different plastic is end up ending up in a landfill anyway. And um, so that is the, uh, the story that caught my eye this week. And this is the Saiku. Still there, the bag full of plastic bags under the sink. Still there, the bag full of plastic bags under the sink. That is my Saiku for the week, and that is the show for the week. Thanks so much for uh, joining us. It's always such a pleasure. The, uh, the prompt for next week is going to be this. Um, a woman walks down a dirt road late at night. That is next week's prompt. A woman walks down a dirt road late at night. And that is your prompt for this week. And next week's guest is going to be Todd Davis. Um, Todd Davis has a new book, Coffin Honey. I don't really know much about Todd. I know he's like an outdoor type person, and that's one of the reasons why there's a bear on this cover. It's a beautiful cover of this book, Coffin Honey. Um, And Todd's been in several issues of Rattle. He's a a Pennsylvania poet. He was in the Rust Belt Poets issue um, 
great longer narrative type poems is his style. Usually, I haven't checked out Coffin Honey yet, but that is one of my favorite covers I've seen in a very long time. I love that cover. And uh, that is Todd Davis, Rattlecast number 139, your prompt, A Woman Walks Down a Dirt Road Late at Night. That will be Rattlecast number 139, Sunday, April 10th, the regular time, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye.